Following Jesus in the present age is a perennial task. Join me, Ian Panth, biblical scholar and theologian, as I walk through the Christian scriptures and think theology out loud. If you want to dig deeper into the Bible or engage in God talk, then this is the podcast for you. Welcome. I invite you to listen in on my daily personal reflections as I follow the Robert Murray McShane Bible Reading Plan. You can find this plan on, for instance, BiblePlans.org. I'm recording these reflections, or daily devotions, to provide one example of how one individual reflects upon and reacts to Scripture. My hope is that in listening in on my personal reflections, you, the listener, will be encouraged in the development of your own daily Scripture reading habits and begin to hear, to hear the Spirit speaking to you through the Scripture. These reflections are not examples of deep exegesis and interpretation. For that, you can listen to my Slow Walk Through Revelation series or other podcasts that I produce. Rather, I'm inviting you to listen in on how my Spirit responds to the Scriptures and the Holy Spirit as He speaks to me through this daily habit. Feel free to join me twice daily as I divide the McShane family reading into morning and evening reflections. The secret readings I keep to myself. Also, feel free to simply listen to the scripture reading and spend time with the spirit and the text to form your own habit of listening to the spirit in the text. The reading for July 25th in the morning is Judges chapter 8, and I'm reading from Joel Anderson's translation of the Torah and the former prophets. Judges chapter 8. The men of Ephraim, though, said to him, What have you done to us? You didn't call us when you went to battle against Midian. And they violently argued with him. But then Gideon said to them, What have I done now compared to you? Isn't the gleaning of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abiezer? Elohim has given the commanders of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb into your hand. So what have I been able to do compared to you? Because he said this to them, their spirit subsided, and they were no longer angry with him. Gideon, along with the three hundred men with him, then came to the Jordan and crossed over. They were exhausted, but still in pursuit. So he said to the men of Sukkot, Please give some loaves of bread to my people who are on foot. They are exhausted, and we are pursuing after Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. But the chieftains of Sukkot said, Is the hand of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, When the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh on the thorns of the wilderness and on the briars. Then he went up from there to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. The men of Penuel replied to him, just like the men of Sukkot. So he also said to the men of Penuel, When I return in peace, I will pull down this tower. Now Zepa and Zalmunna were in Karkor, and their armies were with them about 15,000. 
all that was left from all the camp of the sons of the east, for a hundred and twenty thousand men and men swordsmen had fallen. So Gideon went up the way of the tent dwellers from the east of Noba and Yogbeah, and he struck down the, the army just as it was feeling secure. But Zeba and Zalmunna fled. So Gideon pursued after them and captured the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna, and the entire army was terrified. When Gideon ben Yoash returned from the battle by the ascent of Heres, he captured a young man of Sukkot and questioned him. The young man wrote down for Gideon the names of the chieftains of Sukkot, along with her elders, 77 men. When he came to the men of Sukkot, he said, Look, here is Zeba and Zalmunna, the men whom you taunted me about, when you said, Is the hand of Zeba and Zalmunna now in your hand for us to give bread to your weary men? Then he took the elders of the city and made those men of Sukkot well acquainted with the thorns and briars of the wilderness. He also pulled down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. Then he said to Zeba and Zalmunna, Where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They said, They were just like you. Each one was in the form of the sons of a king. Then he said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you would have let them live, I would not kill you. Then he said to Yether, his firstborn, Rise up, kill them. But the boy did not draw his sword, for he was afraid. He was still just a boy. So Zeba and Zalmunna said, You rise up and attack us, for like, a man, for like a man, so is his might. So Gideon rose up and killed Zeba and Zalmunna, and then took the crescents that were on the neck of their camels. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you, your, your son and your grandson, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Then Gideon said to them, Let me ask one request of you, though. Let each man give to me the earrings from his spoil, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. So they said, Of course we will give them. So they spread out a garment, and each man threw the earrings from his spoil on it. The weight of the golden earrings he had requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, apart from the crescents. The pendants, the purple garments from the kings of Midian, and the collars that were on the necks of their camels. Then Gideon made an ephod for himself, and set it up for himself in his city, in Ophrah. All Israel ended up, ended up whoring after it there, and it became a snare for Gideon and his house. But Midian had been humbled before the faces of the sons of Israel, and no longer did they ever raise their heads. The land was undisturbed for forty years during the days of Gideon. Jerobel ben Yoash went and settled in his house. Now Gideon had seventy sons who came from his loins because he had many wives. He also had a concubine in Shechem who gave birth to a son for him, and he named him Abimelech. Then Gideon ben Yoash died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Yoash's father in Ophrah of the Abiezrites. But after Gideon had died, the sons of Israel returned and whored after the Baals, and they set up for themselves Baal Barit as Elohim. The sons of Israel did not remember the Lord their Elohim, who delivered them from the hand of all their surrounding enemies, and they did not do chesed for the house of Jerobel, that is, Gideon, given all of the good that he had done for Israel. That ends the reading of Judges chapter 8.
So Judges chapter 8, we continue uh, and conclude the story of Gideon, but we don't conclude the story of Gideon's descendants. And as I was kind of commenting on yesterday's reflection on Judges and Gideon, that there were aspects of Gideon's character that I think were, were foreshadowing uh, kind of problems for the for the future for Israel but also for Gideon and his family um, which like begins back with Gideon's needing uh, signs and signs and signs to go up and do what God's asking him to do uh, the, the his first call he has some hesitation and fear overturning the um, his father's uh, altars to Baal and Ashtoreth and we begin to see that return to the Baals like right after he dies uh, at the end of this chapter uh, we also see a bit of that kind of turn to what I see as a theme of tyranny throughout uh, scripture this one of the temptations when one gets into power is to become a tyrant like the kings of the nations and so in a sense there's this sort of back and forth between uh, Gideon asking the different peoples to help him um, and meeting meeting with resistance or uh, it's interesting Ephraim's like well why didn't he ask us to help but we we know from the earlier story well that uh, God's purpose was to keep the troops the troop amount small uh, so that Gideon wasn't getting all the credit uh, that God would get the credit and I notice I'm pretty sure I mean even though Gideon when they ask him to be ruler over them he says I'm not going to do it the Lord will rule over you uh, I'm not sure if even the refrain of the Lord and Gideon, right? Because before, in the previous chapters, the credit goes to the Lord and Gideon. And now, in this chapter, it's pretty much Gideon that's getting all the credit to the point where the people are like, hey, why don't you rule over us? But in terms of the tyranny thing, it's the, the failure to to feed the 300 is met with basically I'm going to like come back and whip you because you failed to help and that seems <clears throat> overreaction and tending toward that violent tyrannical kind of reaction to something uh, and so he says that to the two groups that kind of refuse to help and sort of mock him. And so again, it's that sort of ambiguity. It's like on the one hand, you're like, well, yeah, they, they mocked and refused to help. They could have given bread and, you know, he, he is going after people who had been oppressing them. Uh, but that his reaction is, uh, I'm going to come back and I'm going to, 
have you feel the briars and the thorns, which is like flailing, whipping them, whipping their leaders, <clears throat> seems to be that kind of overreaction. Uh, and then, yeah, so there's that element. But then, you know, when they ask Gideon, this is, again, one of those things that might be too subtle or uh, might get glossed over by a contemporary reader if they're not exactly sure what's going on here. So they ask Gideon to rule over them. Like we basically like <laughs> you, you, your son and your grandson, you can rule over us uh, because, you know, you how you dealt with Midian and we want someone to continue kind of going out and fighting for us uh, in this way. So, you know, basically we'll give you the, the kingship and Gideon's response seems like it seems like the right response, right? The, the, no, I don't rule over you. The Lord rules over you. Uh, however, then we have sort of this, um, while Moses is up on the mountain, Aaron gathers up uh, gold to make an idol kind of moment. So he says, look, I'm not going to rule over you, but, you know, give me your spoils, your gold. And uh, and what he does with it is he makes an, an ephod. And the ephod is uh, from Leviticus is what the priest war and it represented all the tribes of Israel. So he's not taking the kingship status, but he's uh, irrigating to himself a kind of a priestly leadership status in the community by making this thing. And as we as the text goes on to tell us, this becomes a snare for him and uh, for the people so he's basically he's creating like a worship center but it's also because it's something that's worn uh it seems to be around him so he seems to have this view of like well i'll keep god as king but you know it'll give me some kind of status symbol in your community but that becomes this sort of idolatrous moment much like while Moses is up on the mountain, uh, the people say, well, we don't know where Moses went, so make us make us a God that we can, you know, see and, and worship, so we can engage in worship. And you have that, I, I see sort of a similarity here. It's like, no, God is the king, but, you know, we could do this, and that would kind of balance things out. You could show your honor and respect to me by doing this, and then I can function as God's priest among you, in a sense. Um, and that becomes a snare for the people. And then we also have that um, tyranny. So go if you, if you think back to the sort of uh, primeval history, chapters 1 to 11 of Genesis, which is kind of setting the big sort of um, mythological kind of background for the history of Israel. All the things that go on in there are again going to be 
done in the realm of history, uh, which I think starts with Abraham, but the the sons of God who uh, come down, who take the daughters of men, and they take from whomever. Uh, you have Lamech, who's like got, you know, kills kills some guy, but also has two wives, right? It's like these these mentions of polygamy and taking of women and that's uh you have that with david right when he's he's at home when he should be at war and he takes a woman someone else's woman and now you have this narrative of uh, gideon having many wives and 70 sons so he's acting like one of these uh sons of God, one of these Nephilim, right? The Nephilim have been uh, not eliminated fully from the land, but they've been dealt with. That was the fear. And now he's becoming like one of these figures, one of these tyrant kings, even though he's saying, let's, let's, you know, it's, it's God, but his actions suggest that he's not quite in tune with what kind of king God wants uh, a person to be or what kind of leader. So yeah, I've rejected the kingship, but I'm still going to act like a king. And so, you know, the taking basically having a, a harem, uh, 70 sons. Uh, and then it goes on to say, and I'm, I noted this last time, that uh, one of his uh, children, he names Abimelech, which translates to my father is king. So I'm not going to be king, God's king, but I'm going to act like a king. I'm actually going to act like a king and a priest. And, you know, getting kind of comfortable in this. I'm going to call my son, my father is king, Abi Melech. And yeah, so I, I don't think this sets things in, in good stead that this is an ultimately positive reflection on uh, Gideon's time as judge. Yes, he deals with the, the Midianite oppressors, but the way he deals with things and the way he deals with people aren't uh, all positive in line with the kind of uh, kingship or the imitation of God that, that uh, Scripture has in mind, which, you know, if you can go to Ezekiel's Good, Good Shepherd passage, that's kind of like this description but also you can go back to Deuteronomy and go well, these are the things that kings should not do and these are the kings that the things kings should do um, so Gideon is already acting like a tyrant and then that doesn't bode well so after Gideon had died the sons of Israel returned and whored after the Baals and they set up for themselves Baal Baris as Elohim the sons of Israel did not remember the Lord their Elohim who delivered them from the hand of all their surrounding enemies and they did not they did not do chesed uh, which is like covenant love faithfulness for the house of Jerubel that is Gideon given all the good that he had done for Israel so even the name uh, the, the name Jerubal becomes a bit of an ironic name so it's like strives against or struggles with uh, Baal, Baal, 
and he ends up being one who, uh, in the name of the Lord, he ends up setting up an, an altar and a, and a system and his children go after the, the local deities, including making a shrine to Baal Barith. And yeah, so he doesn't, the whole parenting thing doesn't go well for him. And the effects of how he acts as a king, those are going to have further ramifications. So I'm saying how he acts like a king because, of course, he refused that that title. But it seems like he acted that way anyway. So it was almost like it comes across in the end as kind of almost a lip service to God uh, instead of a full-blown rejection of that that position it's like i'm refusing the title but i'll do everything uh that a king does and uh including uh kind of in the way of worship even if it was done in the way of yahweh that it's uh turning the people toward the local deities again and abimelech is going to become uh, even more uh, of a tyrannical kind of figure than his father Gideon. Um, yeah, but that that ironic thing, like even when it introduces the name of Jeroboam uh, as as Gideon, at this point, like in the in the narrative, it was like Gideon, also known as Jeroboam. Now it's Jeroboam, oh, also known as Gideon. So it's almost like that became the name he was known by. And you wonder if there's a sense in which, because Baal is master ruler, so he is being called, even though he rejected the name, ruler. And I don't have the Hebrew in front of me. Um, I could look that up. Maybe I'll do that before I do tomorrow's. But I'm wondering what what verb or title they're people are suggesting when they say rule over us so is it a version of Baal is it a version of Melek there's a few words for rule just like there is in in English there's some synonyms so I'm just curious as to how whether this is a play on words there if not just a play on the synonyms now don't call like don't call me rule ruler but you know you can call me master oh, don't call me king but you can call me lord it's almost like that Jerubbel name, which originally was a positive thing, saying one who strives against the balls, uh, the 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 gods, the rulers, uh, has actually now a different meaning in that he has the name ruler in his name. Yeah. So those are my thoughts for today. I just like for me, it's. Judges is a really intricate, complex book in terms of the sort of spiraling down uh, from, you know, what what you would think was sort of the the high point where they've where Joshua has left left them with most of like at least Israel or the Canaan is subdued under them, but it's the spiraling down and spiraling away from. Uh, worship of the God who brought them out of Egypt. 
and reverting back to the worship of local deities. Uh, it's a complex book, and sometimes I think the way the, the judges get presented, uh, they, again, it's this theme of, you know, sanitizing or valorizing. It's like you, you only pay attention to the sort of big heroic things that they do, but uh, the authors, editors of scripture are very much interested in the way in which people do things and the character of the people doing them. So that God uses Gideon, just like that, that God uses Israel or that God uses Babylon for that matter, isn't a full-fledged endorsement of everything that person does or that nation does. And I, I think that confusion is easily made even in the modern world. Like there's a sense in which, well, you know, we, but like World War II is still relatively strong in our, in our uh, imaginative history and how we understand ourselves, uh, at least in the, the Western and European world, that it's almost like, well, we, we def defeated the Axis armies and, and then we then interpret ourselves as the grand heroes and for some nations uh, that becomes like a a like it's as though they have God's endorsement or you know even in their mythology they see themselves as a city on the hill or the one hope for humankind they might even call their leader the leader of the free world and you have these <laughs> strong, powerful uh, myths about one's identity and the nations of one identity that that overlooks um, the that we are complex people, complex nations, and just because uh, let's say one was used as a tool for good in the world. It doesn't mean that you have uh, God's general blessing on everything you do. And I think that's often how the judges are read. Uh, I think the same thing happens with Samson. But as we'll get to the Samson story, it's like, uh, he's he's not all that. <laughs> like, he's just like, there's, God uses him, but you, you, you can't look at Samson and go, oh, everything about him is great. Or, and then when we tell the stories, we leave out the dark bits, right? We leave out the problematic bits. But that's not the scripture we have. Um, and the same is true of when we look at our own uh, identities, uh, especially as shaped by our, our nations or our church history, that we will often gloss over um, and forget the things uh, things about us that God would certainly condemn, right? We take it as a blanket, oh, we're, we're blessed because we've got all these great things going for us or we did this one thing in this moment in history. But I think that that's a theological mistake and it's not even what happens when Israel tells its own history. They look at the good and the bad and they're honest about it. And I think that's our model um, for looking at ourselves as a Christian, for looking at the history of the church as a Canadian, 
for looking at the history of Canada um, and, and how those things are combined and that that ought to lead not only to praising the good things but confessing the evils that we do as individuals and as uh, institutions, nations, uh, humankind, all the everything needs to go on and that's actually the model that we have in scripture <laughs> uh, and I just I guess it's maybe too subtle for our supposedly uh, highly intelligent literate uh, modern world which makes me think that uh, that's another place where we can work on becoming a little bit more literate so we become more careful readers of the text Anyway, those are my thoughts arising out of uh, the continuing story of Gideon, which comes to a close today, but the ramifications of his life are going to go on as uh, we encounter his son, my father is King Abimelech, uh, in the next chapter. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you for joining me for this morning's personal reflection. Don't forget to join me this evening, release time 5 o'clock, for the evening's personal reflection according to the Robert Murray McShane reading plan. If you find these reflections helpful and encouraging, then don't forget to subscribe and turn on notifications. Again, my hope is that in sharing my personal reflections with you, you will form your own habits of listening for the Spirit and reading the text. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you for joining me today on this episode of Star Cross Kingdoms. If you like this content, well, you probably already know what to do. Like, subscribe, and please share. Also, feel free to send in your questions. Just keep them friendly and conversational, and that way I'll be far more likely to respond to them. Until next time, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ.